Welcome to Paranormal Coffee Hour. We're your hosts, Jen. And Courtney. And we're pouring you a strong cup of the weird, the wonderful, and the woohoo. On today's episode of Paranormal Coffee Hour, we're talking creepy Christmas and holiday traditions. Yay. And we have a special guest with us today. Once again, we bring back Miss Jenny Green. Hello. So the December holiday season hasn't always been full of Hallmark's sanitized movies. Pretty lights, joyous celebrations, and overeating. In the Northern Hemisphere, December has historically represented increased darkness, cold, mystery, and unpredictability. I can get behind that. This is the foundation upon which many of our creepy holiday traditions we're going to discuss are based on. According to us, we think a creepy Christmas or holiday tradition is one that breaks the sanitized holiday mold of pretty, peaceful, warm, and wholesome. So in order to talk about these creepy Christmas traditions, we're going to kind of separate it off by region, and we're going to stay pretty much, not exclusively, but pretty much in the Northern Hemisphere. So we're going to start with the Germanic region of Europe. And we're going to start off with one of the most well-known creepy stories and traditions, which is Krampus. So Krampus uh, is believed to have originated in Germany, and he is kind of the counterpart to Santa and St. Nick, kind of like the bad cop, good cop type, you know, scenario. Oh, is he the bad boy? Of course. Yes. <laughs> I like bad boys. <laughs> so he comes with St. Nick on the evening of December 5th to terrorize naughty children. So basically, he like uses a switch, you would say, to either smack them with it. Oh. Or he puts them in his sack or basket on his back. His naughty sack. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Told you I could get behind this. <laughs> And drags him back to hell. So, yeah, kind of terrorizing. It's thought, though, that he's actually part of a pagan ritual for the winter solstice. Mm -hmm. So that's kind of where he comes across. And it's interesting because we send out holiday cards. And it's kind of normal or was normal for there to be Krampus greeting cards. <gasps> No shit. Oh, yeah. That'd be awesome. So they're sent out. They have images of Krampus usually stuffing children into sacks <laughs> or whipping kids with chains and sticks. Um, doing Christmas why cards. did we stop this? <laughs> I don't know. And the cards actually date back to the early 1800s. So, yeah, I don't know. I mean, I found pictures of them if you do, like, image search. I think I've seen those now that you say yeah, that. Yeah, they're interesting. We should start sending them out. We should. Yeah. Oh, fantastic. Towns across Eastern Europe, even nowadays, have Krampus parades, where lots of people dress up as Krampus and St. Nick and other lore-based figures. But there are lots of Krampuses that, you know, just kind of walk down the streets and people line up to see them and they actually whip people. Ha <laughs> ha. Um, and what's really interesting that I found, because some of these costumes are really extravagant, and some of them run thousands of dollars. That is crazy. Holy shit. It's also good to note that he was banned. The celebration was banned in Austria, which is part of Germany. Austria's neighbor to Germany, but they would have been part of the Nazi okay. regime. Oh, yeah. Well, yes. that makes sense, because it was from like 1934 to 1938. They believed Krampus was a symbol of sin and evil. So it was anti-Christian. So they couldn't celebrate Surprise, it. surprise. Right. If you've never seen Krampus, he's kind of made to look like the devil. Mm -hmm. He has horns. Or I have a better description here. Ooh. He looks like a goat who has eaten 20 other goats and then walked through fire. <laughs> <laughs> Fair. 
fair enough. <laughs> All right. <laughs> yeah, he has wow. like the long tongue and like usually horns and hooves. And claws. And claws, yes. Which, yes. Sexy. <laughs> hey, we yuck other people's yum. Okay. This is true. This is funny. He was depicted in a video game called Carn Evil, and his catchphrase was, I'll stuff your stocking. <laughs> <laughs> Whoa. Okay. This was a game and not a porno. Right. <laughs> I feel like. So for Santa, what do we leave out? We usually leave out like milk and cookies, right? Yeah. Which for Krampus, it's customary to leave out a goblet of schnapps for him. <laughs> Damn. Oh. What? See, why I can hell? so get behind yeah. this? Why the hell are we not doing this? I I want a shot of something. A fucking man. And some naughty children in a sack. No, no I don't need no. the naughty children. I'll take the sack, but not no, the children. No, like giving away your naughty children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, as long as we're being naughty, I guess I'll tell you that he uh, he doesn't just target children. Oh, sometimes he targets women and has his way with them. <gasps> Oh, Alrighty. so Courtney, Courtney is volunteering as tribute. <laughs> I got this. Don't worry. This isn't the Hunger Games. <laughs> oh. This is the Pleasure Games. <laughs> oh, Lord. Yes. <laughs> that is Krampus. And on that note, let's take it over to the female side of Krampus, which we have Frau Perchta. She's interesting, too. She is interesting. Yeah, so she's actually the female version of Krampus, or that's kind of what she's known as. Also known as a spinning room lady. <laughs> <laughs> she kind of looks like she wears a long skirt that has a long knife under it and oh, sets oh. fire to all the fabric women haven't finished weaving. Ooh. Also, if your house is not properly tied up, she'll disembowel the owners, and replace their guts with straw and rocks. So, so this woman enjoys a tidy house and your spinning right. and fabric weaving yeah. done. She yeah. sounds super friendly. Exactly. She, she sounds like somebody you don't want to fuck with. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, she also has sometimes is depicted with a beaked nose made of iron, dressed in rags, and sometimes carries a cane. And it kind of resembles like a old crone. Okay. She bears a resemblance to the Scandinavian goddess Frigga. 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 Mm -hmm. Yeah. Sometimes she also, when you look at pictures of her, has a misshapen goose foot. Oh. So sometimes I've heard that they think that that might be linked to the tradition of eating goose at Christmas. Oh. Uh, just like Krampus or Santa, people leave out like an offering for her. For her, it's traditionally a bowl of porridge. Okay. Which is like oatmeal. oatmeal. Kind of oh. like oatmeal. Yeah. Yeah. Which is also bullshit. Like, if you gave her something good, maybe she would stop burning shit down. Right. <laughs> and disemboweling you. Yeah. Like, why doesn't she get the alcohol like Krampus? Right. 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 Leave that bitch a brandy. <laughs> something. <laughs> so she also does other things besides set things on fire and disembowel people. Other There's legends. <laughs> yeah. Other legends say she's part of the wild hunt. I love the wild hunt. Yeah, we know. <laughs> so yeah, she flies through the night sky with an army of lost souls. And a lot of her army servants look a lot like a bunch of Krampuses. She was also supposed to scare away the spirits of winter to bring about spring. I oh. mean, she is a bit terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> if you're going to disembowel me because my house ain't clean, I mean... Well, and that's interesting because I found like the more family-friendly version of her was considered to be like the grandmother of winter, the woman who makes snow. So that seems like it's kind of the opposite. Ooh, that got uber sanitized. Yeah. From disemboweling to a granny that makes snow. 
<laughs> what the fuck is Krampus then? A grandpa that makes... You don't want to know. I don't know. <laughs> you don't want to know. Bad decisions. <laughs> <laughs> Depends on who you ask. So Frau Perchta, we're going to head into the woods and talk about the night folk. These guys are a little creepy. I was going to say that sounds terrifying. It is. So at the intersection of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, people could sometimes catch a glimpse in wintertime of a mysterious procession, the night folk. Now, this is also sometimes known as the night throng, or even more charmingly, the death folk or death throng. Unlike the wild hunt, this group does not fly about chaotically in the sky or even engage in overt violence. Oh, They are a solemn procession of lost souls and perhaps other beings from beyond. They most often wear all black, such as robes and shrouds, kind of reminds me of shadow people. Mm -hmm. And if they are seen at all, sometimes they're often then seen with music. Or if they don't see them, they hear the music, as in people who might encounter them. The night folk often appear with haunting music playing melodies that can be sweet and strange enough to entice mortals to follow after them. It's kind of like the Pied Piper. Mm -hmm. They are similar to the fairies of Ireland and Britain, who would sometimes lure mortals into their circles or their realm with enchanting music. Such mortals were usually never, ever seen again. Go figure. They may even offer to teach you a new song and new instrument skills. Fantastic. I've always wanted to learn. But it's always best to tell the night folk. No. It was said that in Alpine areas at the holidays, one needed to be on the lookout for these night folk. It was foolish to try and block their ghostly march. And if they proceeded towards a house or some other building, you should always open the doors on both sides to let them pass through. If not, disaster and ruin might befall the house or its owners. If they were left alone, they would often leave those around them alone, but not always. In some regions, they could be relatively harmless. But in some areas, especially in Switzerland, they could be outright malevolent if crossed. Here, the night folk often proceeded without music, and they could be thought of as heralding plagues and disasters. So basically, they're like this line of ghosts type things. And you see them coming and you just open up your front door and your back door so they can just trample through your house and Pretty much. be on their way. Yeah. Right. Okay. What yeah. happens if your house only has one door? You're mm. fucked. Right. <laughs> open the window. They get caught. Yeah. It's basically like the wild hunt, but they're just, you know, they're like that tsunami of souls mm-hmm. and lost souls. So they're just kind of, uh, makes me think zombies. Almost. That's, that's exactly what I was envisioning. Mm-hmm. Spooky little fuckers. Yeah. Well, from the night folk of Germany, Austria, and Switzerland, we head into the story of Belsnickel. Interesting little fella. Now, I want to say here that this story of Belsnickel, who is a companion to St. Nicholas, is often has different names in different parts of the world. But this story is played out over and over and over again with a few minor differences so seems like saint nick has a lot of buddies companions (laughs) quote-unquote friends Mm -hmm. partners (laughs) (laughs) Mm -hmm. so unlike saint nicholas bell snickle has a bit of an attitude (laughs) he's kind of a curmudgeon as they would say like many of the mysterious holiday horrors he is companion to saint nicholas like we said but he doesn't actually travel with saint nicholas he travels alone oh Mm-hmm. His name refers to the fur he wears, which is known as bells, and his connection to Nicholas, 
thus the nickel. So that's mm-hmm. how he got his name. Poor he wears, guy can't even have his own name. I know. He also wears rags and sometimes women's clothing and occasionally deer antlers on his head. And sometimes you'll hear him referred to as the Christmas woman. He, that doesn't even sound creepy. That just sounds very strange. Like, why? Cross-dressing? I don't know. Oh, well, that's not strange. No. But just all of it together. Yeah. Some traditions say that he wears a mask with a rather grotesque long tongue, which clearly connects him to Krampus. Mm-hmm. So as we said, Bell's Nickel travels on his own, but with much the same intention as other companions of St. Nicholas. He shows up a week or two before Christmas and comes to reward the good children and punish the bad. But he does it in his own special way. Special, you say? So he sounds like he's like a combination of St. Nick and Krampus. Yeah, he really is. Because in his pockets, he has candy, nuts, <laughs> and cakes. I got candy. I Get in the van. <laughs> <laughs> but he also carries a switch to administer beatings. Fantastic. To improve morale. No. <laughs> Courtney's like, I will take the beating and forget the candy, but give me the nuts. Amen. <laughs> You're not wrong. I know. <laughs> when Bell's nickel arrives, usually after dark, he will rap on the door or window with his switch. When a child answers, Bell's nickel will either ask them a question or demand they sing a song for him. If he likes what he hears, he will toss treats to them. But if they try to catch these goodies too quickly or too greedily, they might still get a swat with his birch. I feel like this is a no-win situation for these children. Yeah, right? He might ask children what good deeds they've done in the past year. Again, if they can't remember or the deeds aren't especially impressive, they might get another sweat. He's a rather grumpy fellow who doesn't need much of an excuse to administer punishments. He served as a reminder to children that they still had a little time to be good before the big day, you know, Christmas. Getting swatted was a warning to amend their ways, Courtney. Fuck that. I like my ways. Here's the crazy thing. So the Bell's Nickel Tale is one of those legends that was for many years enacted as part of the holiday celebrations in Germany. Men would dress up as Bell's Nickel and they would travel from house to house in their villages and offer treats to the children and perhaps give them a playful sweat with a soft birch. Indeed, it was so popular that it was actually brought to America by German immigrants in the 19th century. In these communities, Bell's Nickel was much more important than Santa Claus, even if he had a similar function. So we had from Bell's Nickel to Rachnacht. Rachnacht. It's actually a a night of celebration. So I'm going to butcher the German on this one. Rachnacht. Depending on which tradition and location you are studying, Rachnacht is either the time between Christmas and the Epiphany which is like the 12 days of Christmas, or it starts a little bit earlier on December 21st and goes through the same period. The tradition of observing this night is strongest in the Bavarian region of Germany. It is thought that the word might mean smoke night and refer to an ancient practice of burning some kind of protective herbs or incense to protect against the evil spirits. That's what they call it. Mm -hmm. Alternatively, it may mean something like rough night and refer to the rough and unsavory Creatures that roam the world, or at least those folks who dressed up as them for pageants and festivals. Celebrations of this night can be dated to the early 18th century, and they continued up until World War II, when once again, the Nazis banned them. Fucking Nazis. It's only been in the last 40 years or so that these festivities have been revived. Some celebrations include the firing of cannons to frighten away evil spirits, and the appearance of many Krampus-like costume characters to entertain, scare, and delight onlookers. These festivities are not exactly 
revivals of ancient traditions, but are more often modern day presentations of the folklore. Children and others might also go door to door seeking sweets, kind of like trick-or-treating. Wait a minute, they're shooting off cannons, which seems a little excessive. And, and then and you've got children outside. Outside trick-or-treating. Yep. It's fine. It's yeah. fine. It's just it's just Did powder. you die? <laughs> it's just it's gunpowder, I'm sure. I'm sure there's no cannonballs involved. Hopefully. Traditionally, when these children would go to door to door seeking sweets, they would be given a kind of a jam donut. Mm-hmm. Imagine finding all those mm-hmm. in your pockets. <laughs> Who said they put them in their pockets? You going to eat all those damn jam donuts all night long? Maybe they had them in their sack. (laughs) (laughs) Thankfully, these days, Courtney, candy is a perfectly acceptable substitute. Fantastic. (laughs) Probably because your pile of donuts would get messy and sticky very quickly. Amen. (laughs) Tradition says that laundry should never be left out on a line during this night because if the wild hunt happens to ride through, some of the spirits might get caught on the clothesline and be unable to free themselves. Villagers who traditionally burned the smoke and incense to keep spirits away and a tradition of developing skills with a whip, <laughs> again, who thought that the sound would frighten away evil spirits in case they ventured too close to their house. So not only are they burning incense, but they're practicing their whip skills. <laughs> and lighting off cannons. So that's cool. And and somebody has to apparently go out and get these things off the clothesline. <laughs> Whose job is that? Not it. <laughs> that's where you draw the line? On the other hand, I might go hang out by the clothesline if the wild hunt's coming through because I want to be a part of that. Now, here's a cool thing that I did not bring up in the live. People also honed their divination skills, Oh, especially a form of fortune telling with melted lead. Oh, because that's not bad at all. (laughs) I don't even want to know how to pronounce this. It's like maldomancy is the name of fortune telling with lead. Hmm. It's a bizarre one. And on New Year's Eve, people would sit around a table using a candle flame, melt lead in a spoon, which they would then pour into a bowl of water. And as the lead cooled in the water, it would form shapes, which could be interpreted by those. So where can we get some lead, ladies? I think we'll stick to tea leaf reading. This is actually still popular, by the way. You can buy kits to do it. Really? See? But they're usually made with wax. Wax or even oh. tin. Oh, no. Okay, wax makes more sense. Since, you know, lead isn't the most safest of materials to use. Okay. It's fine. We're fine. But did you die? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> All right. On that note, we're going to move <laughs> to one of my favorite traditions. I love this one. The wild barbaras. This uh, one is fantastic. The barbaras. The barbers? The barbaras? The barbaras. The barbaras. It's like... The crazier version of the Karens. It is the crazier version of the Karens, because let me tell you what these are. (laughs) These ladies know how to get down. So on December 4th, in the region of Bavaria, Germany, is St. Barbara's Day. And an unusual group of women will appear on this day known as the Wild Barbaras. They will be dressed in old-fashioned peasant clothing and usually wear aprons and headscarves. They carry brooms and switches and wear a cowbell or two at their waists. More cowbell. They have on grotesque looking masks that are mixes of all sorts of components such as acorns, pine cones, moss, leaves, all put together to make them look like old crones. Everything we craft with. Mm -hmm. But those wearing these masks are usually young women in their teens or even maybe a little bit older. They represent Saint Barbara, who was martyred as a teenager, and they come to remind villagers of her suffering. So how do they do this? Well, Depending on the town you're in, dozens of these barbaras can come through at one time and they will reward children with treats, 
such as apples or cookies, maybe nuts, and also give these treats to the children's mothers. Yeah, they do. (laughs) (laughs) These nuts. Interestingly, instead of punishing bad children, the wild barbers normally only swat young men, which is a refreshing change. Amen. (laughs) But again, these- Do they offer classes? (laughs) (laughs) These blows are not meant to punish Jenny. (laughs) But to bestow good luck. He blows. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. The masked girls may even hit their intended victims until they do something, such as dance. Courtney, dance. Okay? Get your head out of the gutter. Clean the house. (laughs) I mean, yes. Uh, Yeah. I mean, take it for what you can. Once the barbers are satisfied that their swatee has done enough, then they move on. Nice blow, bro. In some villages, these wild barbarous will go into various homes and use their brooms to sweep the house in order to remove evil spirits and shoo them outside. That's so kind. The, yeah. Mm-hmm. The barbarous can only do so much, however. There are certain kinds of evil spirits that will not be dislodged no matter how much sweeping they do. These pesky entities require the presence of St. Nicholas. <laughs> there is a medieval fortune-telling practice also connected with St. Barbara's Day. And it's somewhat like the lead divination also. Hmm. But in this case, people look at flowers from a fruit tree that they bring inside. The whole tree? It might be an (laughs) apple or a cherry tree or some other suitable species. The idea is that the indoor heat will make these trees bloom. And the number of buds and flowers that appear will be an indication of the kind of year coming up. I'm assuming these are young trees that are... I was going to say, what the fuck? Yeah. Yeah. Come along, tree. People have used these buds to try to determine if they will have a good harvest or a successful business. And young women traditionally use them to find out if they will get married. Mm -hmm. Okay, well, that doesn't make sense. But the bringing them in to see what your crop year is going to look like kind of makes sense. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it does. So we move from the wild Barbaras of Bavaria to... (laughs) I like him. To an ogre with a hammer. (laughs) Bloody Thomas. Who's also in Bavaria. Bavaria has some of the strangest ones in in Germany. So Bloody Thomas of Bavaria. He's an interesting one. On the night of December 21st, right around the winter solstice, he is said to emerge from the forests of Bavaria. He's known as Bloody Thomas or even sometimes Thomas with a hammer. He's a fearsome ogre like fiend that carries a blood drenched hammer. He shares his name with St. Thomas, the disciple whose feast day is on December 21st. So the connection between them seems obvious. But unlike Doubting Thomas, the disciple who decided he needed to touch Jesus's wounds to believe, Bloody Thomas, well, he doesn't seem so well disposed toward the everyday people of the region. He will punish those who have done wrong. Once again, he's, you know, judge and jury. We can assume that his bloody hammer demonstrates the ways in which he'll do it. It is thought that the idea for this monster might have come in part from the tradition of slaughtering animals for winter on December 21st, which is also a day to begin making the sausages that are so beloved in the region. Delish. Yeah. Does Thomas wield his hammer to smash unwary and misbehaving children and tenderize their meat for his own hellish sausages? Uh, brats into brats shall we say definitely from wisconsin (laughs) we can only speculate (laughs) so what i find hilarious about this is they use this legend to play a cruel prank on children so a farmer or other laborer might pour animal blood from the slaughter over his feet or legs and head off home to scare his own kids or you know, maybe those of the neighbors, he would loudly bang on the door, threatening to smash skulls or other body parts 
if the children misbehaved. He would then force the door open a crack and thrust one gore-covered foot or perhaps one bloody leg into the cottage just enough to terrorize the little ones into being good and obeying their parents. That is... Can you imagine doing that to your girls? (laughs) These kids don't need therapy at all. Right? Oh my gosh. Shall we get our kids to behave? He might even wear a hideous mask and peek around the door, giving the children a glimpse of his face and probably eliciting screams. Yeah, it's horrible. It's also funny as hell. (laughs) Presumably, the children would be scared enough to do good for the rest of the holidays and hopefully perhaps enough so that they earn some presents and other treats. (laughs) Yeah, they're terrorized. They seem to be content with just making their children behave around Christmas. Right. (laughs) Right. And using methods of terror and trauma. (laughs) So we're headed into a tradition that is most likely not German, though it often gets associated with Germany. And it's not creepy. It's not terrible. It's just a little strange. And that's, Courtney? The pickle in the tree. The pickle in the tree. The Christmas tree tradition embraced around the world today is believed to have started in Germany back in the 16th century. So it comes as no surprise that our continental cousins still have some unique customs relating to the festive conifers. One of these is to hide a pickle somewhere within the branches of the tree, and whoever finds it gets to either get a special gift or open their gift first that morning. Some claim that the tradition started in Germany, but a lot of Germans are really puzzled by it. In fact, there was a survey in 2016 that found 91% of Germans had never heard of the Christmas pickle and only 2% celebrated it. The lies. I know, I've right? i told. Exactly. So if it didn't come from Germany, where did it come from? Mm-hmm. One legend holds that the tradition started with John Lower in the 19th century, a Bavarian soldier fighting in the American Civil War. Lower fell deathly ill while being held at the Andersonville prison camp. Near his deathbed, he asked for a pickle, a request that cured him entirely. Like, okay, that's what I want when I'm dying. Well, I mean, if you think pickle juice actually does a really good job of like replenishing electrolytes. They don't say anything about the damn pickle juice, just the pickle. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it was in the juice. <laughs> After that, Lower hung a pickle from his Christmas tree every year. Another belief holds that poor families in Spreewald, Germany, a region known for its pickles, once hung them on their Christmas trees in the absence of other accoutrements. Hmm. So they didn't have any other ornaments, so they just hung pickles from their tree is what they're saying. I guess. (laughs) I mean, you hang cherries from your tree. True. And popcorn. Uh, not popcorn because the dogs would take the tree down if I did. Yeah, that. but some do people do popcorn right. and cranberries. Right. Yeah. I mean, when we made oranges, that's true. I've granted they're dried. Cinnamon. Sticks. On the other hand, I don't know if these are wet pickles being hung either. <laughs> Just pull it out of the jar and hang it on the tree. <laughs> is this a pickle, pickle, or is it a cucumber pickle? Is it a gherkin? Right. Is it a spear? Is it a full pickle? Mm-hmm. I want details. I've got questions. So the most plausible explanation, though, is that the Christmas pickle was developed in the late 1800s as a marketing tool. Woolworths began importing glass baubles and other decorations from German towns, such as Lascha, selling a legend proved far easier than selling merely a decorative vegetable. But residents of Barron Springs, Michigan, the Christmas pickle capital of the world. There's a Christmas pickle capital. Yeah, our neighbor in Michigan. Okay. May tell you a more whimsical story, which dates the Christmas pickle to the Middle Ages. Two Spanish boys headed home during the holidays, stopped at an inn for the night. Inexplicably, the grumpy innkeeper stuffed the two boys into a pickle barrel. When St. Nicholas coincidentally popped by that very same inn, he sensed trouble, tapped on the barrel with his staff, and rescued the two boys from being pickled to death. In Michigan. Yeah. 
<laughs> I guess. <laughs> hmm. Well, no, that one says it's two Spanish boys. So I have no idea. And this because this I was in the Middle Ages. Yeah, I don't know how that tied in with Michigan and Spanish boys, but <laughs> <laughs> whatever. So we moved from the Germanic region of Europe over to Iceland. And there are three very interesting and interconnected tales we're about to share from the island of ice. I like this one. So we start with the legend of Gryla and her third husband, Lepaludi. Jenny, what do you got on Gryla? Yeah, so Gryla was the, she's like an enormous, repulsive, sometimes depicted with a horned tail ogre. She's also the owner of the Yule cat and the mother of the Yule lads. And she has an appetite for flesh of mischievous children. Oh, those sassy kids again. Yeah, she cooks them in a large pot. Reminds me of Hansel and Gretel. Yeah. Correct. Her husband, like you said, he's one of three Yep. Mostly stays home in their cave. He's depicted as being like lazy. And maybe he just doesn't like the taste of children like she does. Yeah. Or, or maybe he's, he's agoraphobic. Terrified yeah. of her because <laughs> there's a story about how one of her husbands didn't last long because she ate him when she got bored with him. <laughs> so I don't the know. Original feminist. Yeah, exactly. She was first mentioned in the 13th century text, but she wasn't explicitly connected with Christmas until the 17th century. The oldest poems describe her as a parasitic beggar walking around asking parents to give her their disobedient children. Oi. Hmm. Like, hey, can I have your kids? I'm hungry. <laughs> uh, well, but that's an interesting one. But how begging? about this one? <laughs> the current day Gryla however, can actually detect children who are misbehaving year-round. She comes down from the mountains during Christmas to search nearby towns for her meal. She'll hunt children, and then she will carry them back to her cave in a giant sack. That giant sack again. Mm -hmm. You know, I'm thinking about this. Maybe she ate the husbands because it's cheaper than a divorce. I mean, when in doubt. So following Gryla and Lepaludi, we have their beloved family pet, the Yule Cat. Jenny, you're all Iceland. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So the Yule cat is also enormous. So you could think of like this giant cat that is like creeping through town, walking over houses, and visits kids at Christmas and punishes all those who didn't get new clothes. That sucks. Why would he punish those who didn't get new clothes? Technically, it's not just the kids, it's everybody. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I guess. any. I mean, according to Icelandic tradition, anyone who finished their chores before Christmas would get new clothes as a reward. Oh. So uh-huh. basically, they're getting punished for not getting their chores done. Correct. Because the farmers would use the Yule cat as an incentive for their workers. So those who worked hard would receive a new set of clothes. And so they could get more and more for each person in their family. Yeah. So the Yule Cat goes through town and basically like looks in the windows of these houses. Creeper. And Lurking. Yes. <laughs> the only way to save yourself from being eaten was to show it that you got new clothes for Christmas, which meant you were good that year. And if you didn't get new clothes, you would leave out your old clothes and hope they met his standard. So I don't know if that was like hope you could pass them off as new clothes, maybe. Mm-hmm. So if a child was too lazy to earn their new socks or clothing, the Yule cat would eat their dinner and then eat them. <laughs> That's one hungry cat. No right. shit. Well, you don't get that big for not eating all those damn kids. It's true. That's a massive cat. Mm-hmm. 
The story of the Yule Cat dates back to like the Dark Ages. Wow. Much like Krampus, obviously, he's an enforcer of good behavior around Christmas time. And the interesting thing I also found, which is kind of like a little bit more uplifting in the story, is that the threat of being eaten by the Yule Cat was actually meant to inspire generosity in children who don't have to fret about the Yule Cat, meaning kids that were more to do mm-hmm. and would get new clothes didn't have to worry about it as much. And so, you know, hope that that would inspire for them to give clothes to the less fortunate kids. So I was wondering then, maybe the kids that had more clothes be like, oh, you didn't get clothes. You can have my clothes. I wonder if that counted. It does because it's new to them. Yeah, I don't think the Yule Cat would know as long as it's clothes are there. See, there's that generosity. Well, not only do we have the Yule Cat as part of Gryla and Lepaludi's household, but we also have the 13 Yule Lads. These guys are fucked up. These are bizarre. <laughs> I love Iceland. <laughs> the Yule Lads are actually Gryla's kids, yes. supposedly. Um, there's 13 of them, and they're just kind of mischievous pranksters who steal from or harass the people. So they weren't eating kids. Um, They're sometimes called the Christmas Trolls. And what's interesting is they have descriptive names that kind of convey their favorite form of harassing. (laughs) So they could harass other ways, but these are their favorite Favorite ways. So if I was a Yule lad, I'd be inappropriate comments. (laughs) (laughs) But you could still harass other ways. Like, all right. I mean, I feel like that fits in. Go through these quick. The Sheep Clod harasses sheep. Gully Gawk. Hides in gullies. To drink, like waiting for cows. Yeah. Like, to sneak into the barn. To sneak into the cow shed and steal milk. Mm-hmm. Stubby. <laughs> He's just really short. He steals pans to eat the crust out of them. Then there's spoon liquor. <laughs> Wonder what he does. Yeah. He does what you think. Steals and licks spoons. <laughs> He's extremely thin and malnourished. Because if you're only licking wooden spoons. I mean, can't be much. Not the window liquor. Not me. <laughs> Not it. <laughs> Then there's pot scraper, does what you think. Bull liquor, does what you think. <laughs> Door slammer, does, does what, what you, you think. think. <laughs> Skyer gobbler, which this one was confusing because I didn't understand what Skyer is. It's a Icelandic yogurt. Yogurt. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So does he eat the yogurt or does he make it go bad? No, he eats, eats it. it. What a dick. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, then, yeah, you have someone who steals yogurt. Then you have sausage swiper. <laughs> Leave my wiener alone. <laughs> window peeper. So not window liquor, window peeper. Oh, so he's oh. like the, the, the pervert <laughs> looking through at King Kids' windows. Uh, the doorway sniffer. No idea why. Why? why? That one's weird, though, but I think he's smelling for the left. Yes. The, the bread. bread. The left. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. You have someone named Meat Hook and Candle Stealer. Didn't Candle Stealer, like, sneak up on children and take their candles? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, he rips them out of their hands? Yeah. Well, and apparently back then, candles were made out of tallow. Right. So it was edible. Candles well, were yep, edible, that makes sense. So that's probably why. Ah. Nass hat. Mm-hmm. Aren't those fun? I've heard that there's still tradition in Iceland where they'll dress up as the old lads and go around to schools and places like that. That could be fun, but please stop slamming the doors and peeping in people's windows. <laughs> but the door slamming would piss me off the most. I know. 100%. <laughs> yeah. You better be earning your keep if you're going to be slamming the door here. Yeah, no kidding. 
Well, we travel across the water only a little ways, and we're headed to Scandinavia now, where we're going to talk about a few of their own traditions and interesting creatures. And to start us off, Courtney is going to talk to us about the Yulebakken, or the flaming Yule goat. But it's only flaming at the end, hopefully. Hopefully, that's what their plan is. So we've got the Yule goat. Either way, there are lots of goats. Typically, they manifest as cute little ornaments you put on the tree. But some towns erect giant statues of the goat, and sometimes people set those statues on fire. The Yule goat dates back to at least the 11th century, where there are mentions of a man-sized goat figure led by St. Nicholas, who had the power to control the devil. Really? The Yule goat's origins date back to ancient pagan festivals. A popular theory is that the goat is connected to the worship of the Norse god Thor, who rode the sky in a chariot drawn by two goats. Another theory is that this practice is based in Indo-European harvest traditions, where the last sheaf of grain bundled during the harvest was thought to contain the spirit of the harvest and was Mm -hmm. safe for Yule celebrations. Many early European customs included harvest gods that looked like goats. Farmers often referred to their bundles as goats because of the resemblance. Interesting. I'm pretty sure this is a pagan tradition. (laughs) Aren't most of them? Surprise, surprise. Right? The Yule goat, as you can imagine, has changed quite a bit throughout history. In the 17th century, the group of Christmas characters would often include the Yule Goat, a rowdy, sometimes scary creature. The group would be rewarded with candy or seasonal treats, and in some traditions, a member of each household visited would join the group. This practice called Yulebakken or Yulebakken is still practiced in some parts of Scandinavia today and is similar now to Halloween customs in the United States. By the 19th century, the goat became the good guy, a giver of gifts instead of Father Christmas. Men in the family would dress up as the goat and give gifts to the entire family. A popular Christmas prank was to make a Yule goat out of straw or wood and then place it in a neighbor's house without them noticing. (laughs) The family that was pranked then had to get rid of it in the same way. Today, the man goat is no longer and the Yule goat has taken its place in modern history as a traditional Christmas ornament on trees throughout Sweden. In larger cities, giant versions of these goat ornaments are created out of straw and red ribbons. And the whole purpose of the fencing that is around these is to keep people from trying to burn them down. Yeah, they will put fences up, guards. They've even watered them down so it'll ice because kids have been trying to start them on fire. So the flaming Yule Goat only flames once the celebration is done. That's the point, like to let it be. That was my understanding. Of yeah. It. They don't want it to flame throughout the whole time. Yeah. I don't know why, but the only thing I can think of when we're talking about this holiday goat is in the newest Grinch movie. Mm-hmm. Have you seen it? No. Where, where the, there's this goat that follows him around oh. when he was looking for a reindeer to pull a sleigh. Mm-hmm. And he just goes, Dah! <laughs> he just yells like that all the time. <laughs> oh, my God. It's hilarious. All I can figure is that, honestly, the flaming part makes sense to me. Because most of the time in pagan times, you would have burned something. Makes me think of the Wicker Man, honestly. Yeah. But you would have burned something and taken the ashes and then used them in harvest time. Yep. So... Or not harvest time, but in sowing fertilizer. Well, and the winter solstice is basically the beginning of the light coming back. So fire kind of represents that. So our next little character here in Scandinavia is known as the Tomte. Well, this guy is so interesting. The Tomte sounds like he would be this delightful little Scandinavian elf-like being. But he's not. He's an asshole. (laughs) He can be absolutely horrifying. He's fine as long as you leave him porridge. Well, here's the thing about Tomtes, okay? He's small. 
He's an old-looking man wearing gray-colored rustic clothing and sporting a large pointed cap pulled down over his eyes, as well as a big bushy beard. Or he might look completely different. That's because while there's only one Santa, there are many different tomtar, which is the plural of tomte. Oh, never Mm. even saw that coming. They live on farms and other homes in Scandinavia, and belief in them might be a holdover from a time when people believed in house and land spirits. Honestly, when I look at this one, it reminds me a lot about the fairies discussion on brownies. Yes. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what happens here is the Tomte ends up cohabitating with humans. They either choose a corner of a barn or perhaps a space under the floorboards or in the rafters, and they prefer to be left the fuck alone. I get that. So are they small? Uh, relatively. Okay. Trying to get their attention or have them make an appearance in one's home will likely just annoy the hell out of them. If you treat them well, they'll respond in kind. But if you get on their bad side, watch out. A happy Tomte will clean your house and your barn, while an offended one might ruin your crops, steal your possessions, or even make your cows grow sick and die. Oh, fantastic. Mm -hmm. So what does all this have to do with Christmas, right? Well, during that special and happy time of year, it's expected that the homeowner will leave out a bowl of porridge topped, that's important to note, with a pat of butter. Don't forget, it needs to be topped. Do this and your Tomte will be very grateful. But neglect to do it, and he might well kill you in your sleep. Well, that's extreme. <laughs> there are legends and folktales about what happens if that porridge is not left out. In one case, a farmer's daughter decided to eat the Tomte's porridge. Instead of making it an offering, the offended creature began to sing, and she was compelled to dance. But she couldn't stop. And in the end, she danced herself to death. I wonder if that's what happened in that one town where they dance, the whole town like dance themselves to Makes death. Makes me think of Hocus Pocus. <laughs> Oh, there's that too. In another tale, a grumpy blacksmith decides he'd rather have the porridge himself. He not only eats it, but he then takes a poop in the bowl (laughs) to add insult to injury. Fantastic. That's just asking for it. Oh, I thought you were going to say that's just shitty. (laughs) (laughs) But I'm bummed. Okay, what what happened to this dude? So the outraged Tomte devised a terrible punishment for him. A few days later, when the blacksmith was at his forge, the creature pushed him into the flames and allowed him to be burned up completely, except for his feet. Oh, see, he should leave the feet. Why didn't he shit in his mouth? Right? (laughs) (laughs) Which the Tomte left his feet on the floor, still in their shoes. (laughs) So disturbing. (laughs) This is the best one, though. Another story tells of an offended Tomte killing a farmer's cow in anger because the butter was left off the porridge. Remember we said it's got to be on top, right? Well, this Tomte discovered that the butter was at the bottom of the bowl the whole time. So regretting his mistake, he steals a cow from a neighbor in a farm to replace the one he killed. That's funny because the neighbor's not going to fucking notice that you got his cow. So well, sounds like yeah. Tomte needs to take some anger management classes, <laughs> right? <laughs> Needless to say, Christmas Eve. That's when you got to appease your Tomte. Calm your tits, Tomte. <laughs> so our next character in this is known as the Lucy. So Scandinavia has this long honored tradition of celebrating St. Lucia on December 13th. And Lucia was a saint said to have died in the early 4th century. According to legend, she was a martyr for refusing to announce her Christian faith. And yet she could not be killed when the Romans tried to burn her. So they stabbed her to death instead. Thoughtful. She became a popular saint in post-pagan Scandinavia with legends of her piety and of 
her wearing a wreath on her head that held candles. Makes me think of Advent. Yep. That mm-hmm. was my first thought. She did this to keep her arms free when bringing food to Christians and hiding in the catacombs beneath Rome. Lucia celebrations in modern Scandinavia feature girls wearing candle crowns, which require a bit of skill and balance to keep even. She is one of the very few Catholic saints still honored in Protestant countries. The beloved northern tradition of Lucia has a darker side, though, in the form of an evil witch named Lucy. It's possible she was created out of a confusion between Lucia and Lucifer. How do you confuse a saint and the devil? (laughs) Correct. (laughs) And there is nothing wrong with Lucifer, is all I'm saying. Needless to say, Lucy was decidedly less nice to people on that same night of December 13th. She developed into a witch or evil sorceress who might have accompanied Courtney's wild haunt. Yes! On its harvest of souls. Fuck yeah, I got a list. I mean, never mind. (laughs) So since December 13th is not only a night for St. Lucia, it's also the night for Lucy. She is reportedly said to roam the world searching for wayward mortals to be snatched up and made to join the wild hunt. So a couple more days, Courtney. A couple more days. Never to see their homes or loved ones again. (laughs) Sorry, Stitch. (laughs) spirits trolls bad elves and others go with her and people are advised to take care if they must be outside that night naughty children are especially vulnerable but it's not enough just to hide inside if a child has been especially bad lucy might force her way down the chimney to abduct him or her and it gets even worse lucy and her minions can invade your dreams and might even take you from them that's awesome That's creepy. So if at all possible, it's a good idea to stay up until dawn that night to make sure you're, you're safe. Oh, no, that's fine. Now, remember, it's a lot of children, but adults aren't safe here either. Lucy knows if you've not finished all those boring household chores. Once again, it's the household chore person. Traditionally, this would have been things like preparing storage for winter, salting and smoking meat winterizing the home i knew so on even parents needed to be on their best and most responsible behavior if these tasks were left undone lucy might press her fearsome face to the window and scream at them and even attack the house and try to tear down the chimney to get in wow damn that bitch wants in no kidding she's not gonna put up with your shit no more that's fine So we go from the terrorists of Lucy to a festive sauna in I mean, Scandinavia. Why not? This primarily is in Finland, if I understand correctly, but it seems rather lovely and it's a tradition right around Christmas or on Christmas, actually. Yes. Many homes in Finland come equipped with their own sauna. And at Christmas time, this cozy spot becomes a sacred space associated with long dead ancestors. That kind of creeps me a bit. Reminds me of Native American traditions, though, too. Yes, it does. In the sweat lodge. Yep. Yeah. The sauna was a sacred place place for Finns. Babies were born there and the dead were washed in the saunas. The Christmas sauna was part of a rural life in Finland, in the Nordic countries and Estonia. First, the master and mistress of the house took a sauna, then service staff. On Christmas Eve, it's customary to strip naked and take a long and respectful stint in the sauna. Get naked! Right. With everybody. Which is also believed to be home to the legendary sauna elf. That's awkward. There's a sauna there is a sauna elf. He just wants to see naked people. Does <laughs> he just creep on them? To each their own. After the sauna session, Finns head out to the evening celebrations while spirits of those ancestors take their place in the bubbling water. Like, you're going to tell us there's a sauna elf and there's nothing else on the sauna elf. No. <laughs> Creeper. I, 
I know. But they actually have saunas everywhere in Finland. Like you live in an apartment in the city, like there's saunas that you can mm-hmm. go to. So I'm not sure if this is like a neighbor thing, like, hey, everybody, let's get naked. Mm-hmm. Or if you have to schedule time or... I mean, and as one as our guest pointed out, nudity is a very different thing in Europe yeah. altogether. They don't have as many issues as we do. Correct. With nudity. It's not cover yourself up because I can't control myself. Yep. Yeah. It's not even that I can't control myself. I don't want to show myself. Mm-hmm. Mm. They're just more comfortable with their bodies. Yeah. Right. Honestly, the pictures that I saw of the festive saunas for Christmas, there was like makeshift saunas. I mean, they weren't awful looking. They were just like temporary saunas put up for Christmas. They look like tiny houses on they wheels. Do. They do. Yeah. yeah. I love the smell of saunas. They smell like cedar. Oh, yeah, they do. Well, and most of them have cedar inside of them because it can withstand the heat, heat. and moisture. Mm-hmm. All those sweaty balls. <laughs> so we have another tradition uh, next, almost a next door neighbor to Finland is Norway's hiding of the brooms. Oh, yeah. In Norway, they have a pretty sound idea of what witches and evil spirits do and do not like. And man, do those spirits love brooms and mops. Any shafts. Yeah, pretty much any shaft will do. They also love Christmas. So on Christmas Eve, people hide their brooms so witches and the like won't hang around. For good measure, a male family member may pop his head out of the front door and fire off a few blasts from a shotgun to show those spirits who's bought. Yet other versions of the story suggest placing the broom outside the house so the passing witch might make use of it to clean up. Another Nordic tradition encourages early preparation for Christmas. The hiding of all the cleaning implements as a symbolic act to remind the family to rest from work and enjoy the holidays. Now that I can get behind. I was going to say, I mean, if you're putting that broom outside expecting a witch to come by and clean your house, you know what she's going to do? She's going to hide that broom. Up your ass. Yeah. Take that, bitches. So we're going to move from the Scandinavia region of Europe and head a little farther south into France, Italy, and French-speaking Switzerland and Belgium. And we're going to start with the story of Pierre Foutard. So <laughs> Pierre Foutard is yet another of those helpers, kind of like Belsnickel. Mm-hmm. Of St. Nicholas. His name literally means Father Whipper or Old Man Whipper. And the picture <laughs> you found of him, he didn't look that bad. I was just going to say that. He, I mean, he he looks kind of... I take him home. <laughs> Besides the missing arm. Oh, no, that guy? Yeah. Oh, oh that dude. one's not... No, no I mean, the picture, the picture I had is... Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So... It's burly. His job description, uh, basically like others in St. Nicholas's entourage, he must accompany the good old saint on December 6th with the intent of dispensing lumps of coal and or beatings to naughty children. He is known and feared in eastern France as well as Belgium and parts of French-speaking Switzerland. According to tradition, Pierre Fautard was once an innkeeper who was murdered and possibly a cannibal. Mm. He was said to have captured three boys on their way to a religious school and robbed them and killed them. Kind of reminds me of the story of St. Nicholas. Yes. In some versions, he and his wife cut up the bodies and put them in a barrel. So he had help, but he's the one that has to be punished. The Mm -hmm. wife got away. In this medieval version... What are you complaining about? (laughs) Pierre Fattard repents his evils and Nicholas commands him to join him on his journeys to atone for his sins. You know, Nicholas has so much fucking help. What is the point of him? I don't know. He gets to be the good cop. He really does. That's not fair. So Pierre Fattard usually appears in a dark robe with wild hair and a dark beard, carrying a whip or a bundle of switches. He sometimes wears a dark hat and 
once again, we have a person carrying a sack for especially bad children, or he carries a basket of extra sticks and beating implements. All right. He might also carry bells to warn children that he is on his way. He is kind of the anti-Santa. His intentions are anything but amiable. And if the kids are lucky, they'll only get a lump of coal from him. But according to old tales, whippings or even eviscerations were possible for especially bad children. I feel like not so hard, bro. <laughs> if Pierre Foutard carries a whip, it is usually a martinet, a whip with a wooden handle and several leather thongs or lashes. <laughs> now, this is interesting. This type of a whip was used until the 1970s as a way of disciplining children both at home and in schools, and is a very unpleasant reminder that abuse of children was considered completely acceptable in recent times in some very surprising places. But now, isn't it funny that people have a kink for that? <laughs> Not completely. Uh, what is funny, though, is in the 1930s, an American version of this unsavory character appeared in the U.S., known by the charming name Father Flog or Spanky. The Spanky part just fucking throws me. All I think of with Father Flog is he's a burlesque dancer. <laughs> so we head from France, Belgium, and Switzerland into Italy, where Courtney will talk to us about Befana the Witch. Oh, yes, Befana. Forget Santa and December 25th. When in Italy, as all the action takes place on the eve of January 5th. According to folklore, an old woman named Belfana visits all the children of Italy to fill their stockings with candy and leave them presents if they've been good, just like Father Christmas. Belfana enters through the chimney and is left treats by the children who live there, typically wine and local delicacies. Now that I can get behind. The children leave her wine? Yes. <laughs> I am now Belfana the witch. <laughs> <laughs> Throughout the Tyrol Alps region in the ancient story of Belfana, a good witch who was asked by the three wise men to accompany them to the manger to greet the baby Jesus. Belfana gave the wise men a place to stay for the night, but declined their offer as she had too much housework to do. Bitch had too much housework? Yeah, she didn't want to go see baby Jesus. She later felt bad about her decision and gathered toys for the baby Jesus and set off to find him. It is Belfana in some areas of this region that flies through the night on her broomstick and comes down the chimney looking for the baby Jesus. She leaves toys for good children and coal from the fireplace for bad children to remind them to be better for next year. Called the Italian Santa Claus, she visits homes on the eve of Epiphany, the night of January 5th. Belfana sometimes begins Krampus Fullus by sweeping the way for St. Nicholas and the Krampuses and sometimes swatting or sweeping spectators out of the way. So she prepares the way for Krampus and St. Nicholas sometimes. Uh, they're little parade things, yes. Oh, okay. I mean, she sounds like the coolest one out of everybody. Yeah, no kidding. I mean, so when my kid was growing up, where the fuck was the wine and local <laughs> delicacies? Again, again, why cookies and milk? I don't want, nobody wants cookies and milk. I don't nobody even, wants cookies and I don't milk. even drink fucking milk. No. I'm lactose intolerant. Give me the wine. Amen. <laughs> a glass of wine. wine glass? A bottle? <laughs> fishbowl. <laughs> Amen. So we move from Befana the Witch into ancient times in Rome with a celebration known as Saturnalia. And the reason we've included this one is because it shows just how much the traditions that we celebrate today around this time have actually gone all the way back prior to Christianity. This was like the original OG. This was how they practice quote unquote Christmas. 
before Christmas was Christ. Right. So Saturnalia actually honors the god Saturn. And it was a wild and crazy festival that took place in the middle of December, usually somewhere around the 17th to about the 23rd. And it would pretty well correspond later, obviously, with Christmas holidays. Saturnalia often began solemnly with a ceremony in honor of the ancient god Saturn. And thereafter, well, the celebrants held a banquet that was open to all. This was a gathering of feasting and also of drinking, and alcohol featured heavily in the festivities. We have accounts of people getting rip-roaring drunk in public, something that was normally forbidden in ancient Rome. Undoubtedly, things did get out of hand, and fights certainly broke out amongst the intoxicated. Still, drunkenness seemed to have been expected if one was truly going to have a good time. Fuck yeah, bitches! God, sounds like they live in Wisconsin. (laughs) Yeah. In fact, many of the standard accepted behaviors of the time were overturned during this raucous week. Gambling in public was rife, even though this was normally prohibited. Indeed, gambling for money was still technically illegal, so sometimes gamblers would use nuts or other objects instead. These nuts. But who knows how much this law was really enforced. Dress codes were relaxed, and even slaves were permitted to wear clothing that was normally forbidden to them, including the cone-shaped freedman's cap, which is a hat that normally only freed slaves were allowed to wear. It has even been said that Roman emperors would put these on their heads from time to time. Slaves were also permitted to join the feasting and have a degree of freedom they usually wouldn't have and could even disobey and talk back to their masters without fear of punishment. The whole week was about role reversals and overturning norms and many houses would appoint from among the servants a quote-unquote lord to rule over them for the week. This temporary tyrant could give all sorts of absurd orders to the household, such as that others must trade insults, get naked and dance, or whatever else came to mind. The sillier, you know, the better. People of all social classes exchange gifts at this time, and these could be anything from serious to ridiculous, frugal to extravagant. There were even secret Santa-type parties where everyone would bring gifts that were then randomly given to all participants. Some attendees received expensive items while others received junk or jokes, but everyone was expected to accept their presence with good humor. No one walked away empty-handed. So right here, um, basically, these practices would be pulled into Christmas as Christianity came into existence. Yeah, even the white elephant. Yeah, exactly. We had a white elephant going on in ancient Rome. Hmm. It's fascinating. like it. So from the parties of Saturnalia, we head into parts of Italy, Spain, and Central America, where they want to start their new year off lucky, so they have their lucky New Year's underwear. Courtney, what the hell is this about? This one's kind of out there, but whatever. In Italy, Spain, and parts of Central America, people wear red underwear on New Year's Eve. Normal enough, red has long been considered an auspicious color, and swaddling your bum in it seems like a decent way to start the New Year off on a good note. But... Whenever there's underwear involved, you can count on people to get weird about it. Every year in the small Spanish town of Font de la Fiera, people take the opportunity to the fullest and run around in their crimson skivvies. I'm assuming alcohol is involved in this. I mean... It is New Year's Eve. It is New Year's Eve. And it's cold outside and you're mm-hmm. only wearing your underwear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Sounds like a Packer game. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of Packer games are you going to? The ones where the their body painted and uh, have nothing else on, pretty much, except maybe some under, a pair of pants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, come on. So we head over from Italy to Spain, where we have some very, very strange 
Christmas traditions. And it starts with the Dio de Nadal in Catalan, Spain. Courtney, what the ever-loving fuck is this one about? So, the Tio de Nadal, or Cagatio, the crapping log, is like a cross between a Tamagotchi and a piñata. A few days into December, parents gift their kitties a friendly-looking hollow log for them to care for. Every night, the family, quote-unquote, feeds the log and covers it with a blanket. How sweet. What do you mean, feeds it? They stuff, like, their food scraps and stuff into it. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. Offerings. Right. Mm -hmm. Beating the Tio de Nadal, our Christmas log, is a tradition that surprises many people coming out from Catalonia or Aragon. When they see all the members of the family hitting a trunk with baratina, the traditional Catalan red cap, previously fed at the rhythm of a song that encourages the log to defecate gifts. (laughs) It is pretty normal to be surprised. The tradition. Whoa, 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 whoa. They put a red cap on this log, which I can see because I'm looking at a picture of it. Yeah. And then they take that same cap and beat the shit out of the log until it gives them presents. Not, oh, they don't use the cap to beat them, but yeah, they beat the shit out of this I log. I thought they used the cap to beat them. Hitting a trunk with Berrettina, the hat's Ber- on it. Berrettina is the cap. Right. You can't hit something with a hat to make it defecate. Then I'm pretty sure they use the fucking stick like a piñata. Oh, okay. Anyway. The tradition is to bring a piece of strain or thick stock to your home a few days before Christmas. Place it in some corner with a blanket so it does not get cold and feed it daily with remnants of food until the day to make the tío defecate the gifts. There are homes where the tío is simply a piece of wood, a piece of cork, or a box of different sizes as appropriate for the space and sizes of the gifts that will have to be shattered. There are also houses where it is an authentic piece of art with eyes, a barantina, legs, mouth, and nose. Fantastic. In recent years, more and more Tio Nas have been appearing in Catalan homes. The Tio has ceased to be a male figure, and now there are both options, the Tio and the Tioana. Be like, but wait, there's more. We've got a female version you can beat. <laughs> with all kinds of hair, makeup, and clothes in a oh, whole shit. range of colors. Then on Christmas Day, they sing log songs and beat the log with sticks, ordering it to eliminate. It defecates gifts that have changed a lot over time. Traditionally, the Tio never gave big objects. The three wise men were the ones who used to do it. But candies, manger scene figurines, socks, as well as food and drinks for Christmas and St. Stephen's Day, such as nougat, (laughs) champagne, dried figs, etc. Champagne? Fuck yeah. Damn, beat that log. (laughs) (laughs) Don't drop it. Don't drop it. Currently, however, the deal becomes along with the three wise men, the great supplier of Christmas gifts in many homes. They also said that herring and all that smelly shit would also drop out sometimes. Like, yum. Yeah. No, thank you. I wonder if that would make the candy all taste like herring. (laughs) But where does this tradition so strange come from? The Tio de Nadal has its origins in ancient ritual practices aimed at fostering abundance and family cohesion during the winter period. Pagan. In the past, this piece of sturdy trunk, the Tio, was burning in the fireplace once it had expelled all the gifts. This winter fire symbolized in the form of ritual the community and the continuity of the family. It made light and moved the strange, real or imaginary elements away from the house. Originally, the trunk was burning from Christmas Day to the Three Wise Men Day, and then it was stored in a discreet place symbolizing a protective amulet of the house, the Mm. cattle and the fields. It also used to be a tradition to spread the ashes for crops and stables and even over the beds as a ritual to foster fertility. Well, that was a Celtic Yule tradition, too. Right. That's what they did with the Yule logs. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, you can put the Christian in, but you can't fully take the pagan out. Right. Correct. So we move from the pooping log... (laughs) 
To another pooping item, the cagatillo or the caganer, which this one's even weirder in my opinion. <laughs> Little figurines of a pooping man. Yeah. Courtney, what the hell is this all about? So the caganar is a traditional sculpture that originated in Catalonia and spread to most of Western Europe. It's basically a little figure that drops trout and poops all over nativity scenes. So picture, I'm looking at this, this an actual picture of it. So to describe it to you, it's like this little porcelain figurine who is squatting and there's a pile of poop on, on the ground. Think precious moments <laughs> with poop. It's shit. Not wrong. Not wrong. It's so precious. <laughs> They're like, but why? And they say, honestly, why not? Some say it's a fertility symbol, and others claim the figures are supposed to be a reminder that poop, like death, is a great equalizer. From its appearance, the Caganar is represented as a typical Catalan farmer, dressed in a red sash and barretina, which is the red hat, and wearing a pipe on his lips. Sometimes people make Caganars of celebrities, government officials, or royalty. This is the best part, because the figure is typically hidden somewhere in the scene, hopefully far away from baby Jesus, and little kids have a blast trying to find it. Find the pooping man. (laughs) It's kind of like find my pickle. Right. (laughs) In the tree. The tree. (laughs) So they stick this little figurine in the nativity scene. Yes. How many figurines do they have in their nativity scene then if you're trying to find this? I have no idea because... Like, here's my gift to you, baby Jesus. (laughs) (laughs) It makes me think of the movie Love Actually. Was there a lobster? Was there an octopus in the the nativity scene? (laughs) They told me... Here's my shit because I have nothing else to give you. Yes. I took a massive shit. Woo. Well, from Spain and pooping, we move over to Venezuela, Caracas, which is one of our few that is in the southern hemisphere. And we talk about the roller skate mass. Yes, this one's actually kind of interesting. In the Venezuelan capital of Caracas, swaths of city dwellers make their way to mass on roller skates every year on Christmas morning. The tradition is so well established that many of the city streets are actually closed to traffic from 8 a.m. so that the skating congregation can get to church safely. It's not exactly known why this tradition came to be, but some people say that it was an alternative to sledding or ice skating in the summer holiday period in the Southern Hemisphere. It's even said that children will sleep with one lace from their skates tied around their toe the other skate dangling from the window so that their friends can wake them up with a friendly tug on the lace. Unless you're a teenage boy. (laughs) (laughs) Then it is tied elsewhere. I was going to say, which concerns me. Why do I want my skate hanging out? That's got to be heavy. I was just going to say, isn't that heavy to begin with? That was my thought. Can't keep it down, though. (laughs) Not when you're a teenager. I get knocked down. I get up again. Thank you, Chumba Wumba. They get skates instead of the ice skates and the sleds, they get roller skates and roller blades, roller yeah. blades and the skateboards. Cause it's sense. summer. Yeah. Right. For them. So we're moving up a little bit closer to the equator and we're headed to Guatemala for La Quema del Diablo. So on December 7th, precisely at 6 o'clock p.m. The people of Guatemala take part in an annual ritual across the country known notably um, at the Barrio de la Concepcion in La Antigua as La Quema del Diablo, or the Burning of the Devil. It is a celebration in preparation for the Feast of the Immaculate Conception the following day. And at that time, a full-size paper model of the devil, you know, because... Everybody knows how big the devil is, right? Um, is brought out and presented to huge crowds and then ritually burned. 
Now, this particular gathering of people has only been around since the 1990s, though the tradition of burning smaller images of the devil dates back to at least the 18th century. The ritual was held at that time to purge the home of evil spirits and ensure that with the onset of Christmas season, the house would get off to a good start in the new year. Oh, yeah, yeah, that makes sense. And that evil would be driven away in anticipation of Jesus's birth. Originally, the the act would take place in monasteries, the monks burning the devil in effigy and lighting fireworks for the day of Mary, Queen of the Rosary, on October 7th. But this tradition was then moved to December, of course, to make it fit with the celebrations of Christmas. I don't understand this whole burning of the devil thing. I mean, they do understand where the devil lives, right? Like <laughs> That was my thought. Don't. That was my exact fucking like, thought. Ooh. Fucking scary. Ooh, this hurts. Ooh. Yeah. My also thought is they're burning it to clear all the sin and the bad spirits and stuff. But isn't that why Jesus was born and then died was for the fucking sins? Yeah. Well, what's even more interesting here is that while this big celebration goes on in the city, people elsewhere will buy or build their own devils made out of paper mache or wood. And on the appointed day, they will collect burnable trash and assemble makeshift pyres in the streets often with firefighters standing by. So they burn their trash in addition. I am going to use that as an excuse. No, officer, I am burning my trash to get rid of these evil fucking spirits, not because I don't want to pay, okay? They also like to douse their figures with gasoline or other combustibles. Yeah. So this actually, this tradition kind of reminds me of Guy Fawkes Night on November 5th in Britain, where they burn effigies of Guy Fawkes. Mm. Mm -hmm. Um bonfire night as they like to call it but honestly yeah the dangers of fires getting out of hand in neighborhoods with limited firefighting forces that's it's pretty obvious danger and then the smoke created by the fires can be choking environmental safety issue from it what tires chemicals (laughs) yeah the tires that are underneath (laughs) um there have been movements to abolish this celebration altogether or replace it with something else but just don't burn your trash it's that simple (laughs) you know yeah Uh, and these satanic effigies can be whacked and bashed with abandon and may be filled with treats kind of like pinatas sometimes well they suggested sorry they suggested that they do like a pinata devil instead of a burning so that there isn't the environmental impact so from (laughs) guatemala we move over into both the americas and europe so we're bridging continents and we're going to talk a little bit about a phenomenon known as mumming And the people who do it are known as mummers. And no, Courtney, this is not hummers. (laughs) That's fine. But which part of the Americas is this taking place in? Well, they didn't really get specific about that. But it can be parts. I actually think when I think of this, I think of New Orleans, because they do have some traditions where they do this. I also think of parts of like Brazil. So mumming is a long tradition in many European countries as well as in America. And the practice isn't that different from modern day trick-or-treating, but it's done at the December holiday instead. And it's been a longstanding European medieval tradition, but it involves people donning costumes and weird masks and going door to door to sing, dance, or perform in some other way. And basically in return, they expect to be rewarded with a small amount of food and drink. So it's kind of like Christmas caroling. Yep. Mm -hmm. If this sounds like extortion, well, it pretty much is. But everybody should be caught up in the fun of it and, you know, be happy. Uh, People's enjoyment of costumed revels date back further than the Middle Ages. 
uh, even potentially to ancient Egypt. It is thought that the word mumming derives from the Greek momus, a representation of satire. Mimes also come from this word and tradition. Mumming is especially popular in medieval Britain and Ireland, and over time, plays were created with characters and plots that were performed every year. So it's kind of like adult trick-or-treating. But with song. I mean, I can get behind that. Uh, except, you know, instead of getting candy, you're invited in and given like, you know, wine, beer, liquor, food. Growing mm-hmm. up, we used to mm-hmm. go house to house to look at each tree and Round stuff. Robins. Yes. Yeah. And so then you'd have all the drinking. Well, they had all the drinking while us kids didn't. Unfortunately. Yeah. You sound disappointed. (laughs) (laughs) Did you know that in Philadelphia, there is a mummer's parade? Uh Uh-huh. It is an annual parade on New Year's Day filled with colorful characters and up to 15,000 participants. No shit. I've never even heard of it. It There's that many? Yeah. It's been going on since 1900. Oh. Fun. So from mumming in the Americas, we head over to Turkey into Asia Minor, as it might have been once called. And we're going to talk about two very interesting characters that are supposedly cousins to one another. The first is the Karakon Kolos. That's a fun word to say. And this one, according to Courtney, looks a little bit like Bigfoot. He does. Like a Turkish Daryl. Like a Turkish (laughs) Daryl. So the Karakon Kolos, they are dark, they're hairy, they're frightening, and they're kind of like a Turkish Krampus. They often appear at a time between December 22nd and January 21st, which is the coldest time of year in Turkey. That's why they're hairy. They are usually thought of as taller and more pesty, covered in hair that's thick and dark than their cousins that Jenny will be talking about in a minute, Kali Kantazari. And they don't seem to be as dim-witted or easily placated as them either. Wow. Mm -hmm. I know. (laughs) Harsh. They will sometimes lie and wait at night in dark corners of towns and villages and ask passerbys questions or give them riddles to solve. Kind of reminds me of Three Billy Goat Gruff. No shit. Now, if you happen to give them the wrong answer, you risk being killed. Oh, Mm -hmm. that's nice. Yeah. Here's one important detail, though. Your answer has to contain the word black in it. And the creature might ask multiple questions before you're able to go free. Now, if you mess up even once... You will likely be struck dead. And then they'll move on to another victim. How kind. Mm -hmm. Seems like a good way to weed some people out. Right. Darwin. (laughs) (laughs) These creatures are also known for being deceptive in other ways. One of the most notorious is to lie in wait outside of someone's home and call out to its inhabitants in the voice of a friend or a family member. That's creepy. Yes. That reminds me of something else. If the homeowner opens the door to answer... The Karakonkolos will lure them out and place the unfortunate person into a hypnotized trance. I thought you were going to say a headlock. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that too. Once they've done this, they will leave the victim out in the elements. Yikes. In the cold and sometimes the snowy winters of central Turkey, this could be death sentence. So people must be very careful about answering their doors in winter unless they're sure of who it really is. That's why I don't ever answer my door. Mm-hmm. So now we're going to move over to the cousin, and Jenny's going to talk about them. They are the Kali Kantazari, or Zori. Jenny, what the hell are these things? Yeah, so they apparently kind of look like goblins. Uh, They spend most of their year underground, and they're trying to bring about the apocalypse. Oh, Oh. nothing Uh, big. No, (laughs) don't big deal. They're kind of described as like black furry creatures with tusks and horns sometimes. Hmm. 
during the Advent, they come out on to human territory to cause mischief and evil. And the most important thing to note about them, they are usually male and grotesquely well endowed. <laughs> Fantastic. Where do you find them bitches? I don't understand how grotesquely and well endowed go in the same sentence. <laughs> no. I, my, well, there's that. But the best part is how the fuck you know this? Because it's just hanging out there. It's not like they're wearing clothes. Right. <laughs> okay, fine. <laughs> is this like a horse well endowed? Or what are we talking about here? So <laughs> I'm thinking these are like Daryl. So people have seen no, these. these. Are small. The other one was like Daryl. The cousins but, are like Daryl. Right. But I'm saying so people have seen these. And they're like, wow, look at that motherfucker. I'm leaving, I mean, my, I'm leaving my door unlocked. Right. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to move over to the Ukraine and talk about the cobwebs at Christmas time and the Christmas spider. So this one's an actual sweet one, which is funny that I found it. (laughs) One of Ukraine's favorite festive traditions is not one for those with a fear of creepy crawlies, where we would have baubles, tinsel, and stars. Ukrainians use decorations that mimic the natural formation of spiders' webs shimmering with dew, gold and silver. They're like really glittery and pretty. Mm-hmm. The tradition goes back to folktale about a poor widow who could not afford to decorate her tree for her children. Legend has it that spiders in the house took pity on the family and spun beautiful webs all over the tree, which the children awoke to to find on Christmas morning. Spiders' webs are also considered to be lucky in Ukrainian culture. That's really cool. That is a sweet one. I like it. And I also have seen these Christmas spiders and I want one for my tree. They're gorgeous. They are gorgeous. How big are they? Um, I mean, they're decent. They're both. Yeah. Oh. They're sparkly. They're like and... size of silver, or not silver dollars, of um, sand dollars. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we're moving from Ukraine farther east, and we're headed to Japan. And surprisingly, even though Japan is about 1% or less Christian, they do have some Christmas traditions, mostly because the country has a- adopted some of the Christmas traditions from other countries just because of the fun of it. They didn't want to feel left out. So the first tradition that we have is the Santa Kuroshu. Now, this one's a little bit weird. It starts out, so the picture you have is really normal. And then you read the story and well, fuck that. I kind of understand why in this picture his head looks like Like a a bobblehead. Yeah. So while Japan has its own ways of marking winter, especially in the colder, snowier north, many people have happily taken to a lot of the European and American imagery that now goes with the Christmas season. And that does include Santa Claus. Now, the Japanese version of this jolly old elf is known as Santa Kuroshu, which is basically like the familiar versions of Santa, but with one weird and creepy exception. He has eyes in the back of his head. Like, literally, he has eyes in the back of his head. And this is to let children know that he is always watching and can tell if they're being naughty or nice. I bet this, I bet we can't see the back of his head. I bet this is him normal. And then if we were to turn him around, that motherfucker would have another set of eyes. Yep. (laughs) Creepy motherfucker. Interestingly, children usually believe that only Santa Kuroshu can give gifts. So they don't give gifts to their parents. Oh, where the hell was that guy? Yeah, no kidding. Additionally, if a child doesn't believe in Santa Kuroshu, he or she will not receive any gifts that year. Makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Here's another little interesting fact. If you send Christmas cards to anyone in Japan, avoid having the color red on them. Isn't that almost all Christmas cards? Christmas cards, Santa... It has associations with death. Red is generally a very lucky color in Japanese culture. Funeral notices are often sent in red, so it's probably the last thing you want to be wishing for your friends during the holiday season. So what is this dude wearing then? 
A red a suit. Because he's Santa. Yeah. But he's got eyes in the back of his head, so maybe he's looking for death, too. So there is another character in Japan called the Yuki Ona. Now, she isn't specifically Christmas related, but she is kind of a type of a winter spirit. She's a little bit interesting. Legends about Yuki Ona date back to at least the 15th century when acclaimed poet Soji claimed to have seen her. He said that she was at least 10 feet tall with completely white skin. But when he tried to speak with her, she vanished. How's this guy measuring? <laughs> measuring what? Her. Her. Now, <laughs> oh. She usually appears to be a beautiful young woman with long black hair dressed all in white, seemingly one with the snow itself. There are many legends about her, and these can range from sweet to horrifying, depending on the region where she pops up. It seems to me in this general area with these these women with long black hair, if it's pulled back, it's good. If it's brought in front of her face, it's bad. Right. <laughs> Take note, man. <laughs> my hair's in my face. You better watch the fuck out. And climbing out of a well. <laughs> so her stories, both sad and sometimes violent, are warnings to all who venture out into the cold nights of a Japanese winter. She might be seen asking for water, and if given cold water, she grows in size. But if given hot water, she evaporates. It's interesting. Other tales tell how she knocked at the door of an older man's home asking to be let in to warm up. He did this for her. She stayed for a time and then went to leave. And when he tried to stop her and took hold of her hand, it was ice cold. And she transformed into a burst of snow and drifted up the chimney. Other stories have her where she appears to travelers with a child asking them to hug it. What? If they do, the child and the hugger will become covered with ice and snow and the unfortunate mortal will freeze to death. So you're trying to be nice because and then she fucking yeah. she appears to travel with a child and she asks other people to hug seems, the child. Yeah, that seems uncalled for. Right. Now, if the person refuses to hug the child that she's traveling with, Yuki Ona will shove them over the edge of the nearest hill to plunge to their deaths. So you're oh. fucked either way. Mm -hmm. She also haunts forests actively seeking out victims. And when someone comes by, she will attack and freeze them and then suck the essence out of their mouths, leaving them a frozen husk. Oh. And children, I guess, have an especially desirable essence for her. So, yeah, Yuki Una, lovely woman. She reminds me of like one of the mermaids that we were discussing in that area. Yes, almost like a siren. I forget what they call her. Didn't we have to like beat a gong or something? To, yes. Uh, to stay safe from yes. that one? Because I was going to have a gong on a boat. That's right. And our friend Karen, who did the astrology podcast with us, who also is a sound therapist therapist with gongs uh she was more than happy to help us out with the gong aspect but like i said i always pack a gong when i'm on a damn boat you know just in case gotta ward <laughs> off the mermaids the last tradition i want to talk about here in japan is kfc christmas yes ladies and gentlemen that is Kentucky Fried Chicken before they just became KFC. Now, the big day actually tends to be Christmas Eve rather than Christmas Day. People enjoy a sponge cake covered with strawberries and, if possible, a traditional meal of Kentucky Fried Chicken. That sounds amazing. I, I know. agree. Somehow, KFC has become the go-to destination for many people's holiday feasts, whether dining in or taking out. Now, turkey is not a common or easy bird to find in Japan, so chicken is the next logical substitute. In fact, the restaurant chain is so popular now that people have to make Christmas Eve reservations in advance to get seats if they want to die in or score one for fast food, meaning like they have to order it ahead of time, even though it's fast food. Mm -hmm. so that they can be guaranteed to get this package. Now, the package contains a bucket of chicken, 
some sides. It looks like one of the sides could be a very nice looking salad. Yes. There is a cake too that can come with it. And then there's a commemorative plate. Yep. You get the plate too. Now, they're not 100% sure where this tradition developed other than the fact that there's some discussion about how a CEO of KFC Japan had overheard a traveler saying, well, I guess I'm gonna have to have KFC for Christmas because there's no turkey in Japan. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of different stories here. But what does hold true is the fact that you will see Colonel Sanders dressed up like Santa Claus in Japan. And it's a huge marketing thing. Like they took it and ran. There's also another weird food thing in South Africa, fried caterpillars. The fuck? Yeah. When you think of Christmas food, mince pies and turkey are often high on the list. In South Africa, however, it's the creepy crawlies that local children look forward to. Festive fried caterpillars may seem like one of the more unusual Christmas traditions, but these caterpillars aren't just the -the run-of-the-mill variety you find in the garden. No, no. The pine tree emperor moth, or Christmas caterpillar, is covered in very festive hues, giving all who swallow it a little extra luck in the coming year. So they're eating a caterpillar because it looks like Christmas. I think they dyed them is kind of the way it sounds, but I'm not even sure. Maybe not. Are they alive or dead? They're fried caterpillars, so I would assume they're Oh, then they're dead. Sorry, I forgot there was the part of them being fried. Either way, I no thanks. Yeah, I'll take fried chicken, thanks. Yeah. Well, we're going to talk about our last creepy holiday tradition here, which is so funny. (laughs) It's a little bizarre. It takes place in Wales, so we're back in the British Islands here, and it's the Mary Lude, or Mari Lude. Not sure which one, how it's pronounced. Anyway, the Mary Lude is one of the more fascinating and creepy customs with uh, Christmas holidays because what the Welsh do is they basically take a mare's skull, they drape it in a white cloth, set it on a pole, carry it by a person hiding under the cloth, and then the carrier of that skull can control the movements of it and make it snap its bony jaws at unwitting people passing by. Because that's not creepy as fuck Mm -hmm. at all. Now, it's usually decorated with ribbons and color for the holidays, but that doesn't take away from her ghoulish appearance. Lights or Christmas ornament balls are usually set into our eye sockets just for a horrible effect. Mm, That's awesome. Now, what they do with this is, as you might expect, they basically take this skull on a pole and they use it for the tradition of mumming. You know, so going door to door during the 12 days of Christmas, uh, where the holders of the Mary Lude take the skull from the horse to houses in the village starting at sunset. And uh, yeah, they knock and ask to be let in singing traditional Welsh songs. But the homeowner's responsibility is to not let them in. So the homeowner has to respond in song. And so they have sort of this singing contests. The fun thing is, is that this contest may also include rude poems and rhymes. So they're trying to outdo each other. That's a lot of fucking work. It is. So if the owner of the home finally gives in and accepts defeat, they are expected to let in the revelers and offer them some food and ale for their efforts. Once inside, the Mari might snap at children, either scaring or delighting them. Um, it's actually in the owner's best interest to let the Mari loot in, since having it in a its home guarantees good fortune for the coming year. Hmm. Then the revelers will leave, they'll go to the next house, and they start all over again. So needless to say, this creepy Christmas caroling session wasn't always popular with the ministers in the 19th century. Some of them wrote about damning this practice. But guess what? It hasn't stopped. Weird. Mm-hmm. I like that kind of duel back and forth. Yeah. That's nice, but like I said, that's a lot of work. Okay, so we're at that point where we ask you to put down your cup of coffee 
And think about why have we felt the need to sanitize Christmas to the extent we have. I mean, the Victorians used to have creepy ghost stories on Christmas Eve. Mm -hmm. Let's bring the creepy back at Christmas. That's what I have to say. Amen. Because this time of the year in the Northern Hemisphere, it's fucking creepy. It gets dark out super early. It's already, what, 3.30? And it's already looking like shit outside. Yep. So, on that note, keep it weird. Keep it wonderful. And keep it woohoo.